That sound can mean only one thing. That's right. Time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Yes, it's time for another episode of Cascade of History, and it's uh, we're here on Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM Magnuson Park. Have to get that legal ID there in at the top of the hour or as close to it as possible because we don't want to get in trouble with the FCC. <clears throat> All right, I am Felix Bonnell. It is time for another episode of Cascade of History. We're here every Sunday night, 8 p.m. Pacific time, live, talking to people all around the Pacific Northwest about history. Another great show for you. Uh, lots of incredible stuff going on in, in the field of local, regional, Northwest history all the time, of course. Uh, let's see. Coming up later on in the show, we're going to talk to Lee Corbin. He's the chief researcher here for the uh, Cascade of History team. I don't know if he knows that he's the chief researcher for the Cascade of History team, but I like to think of him that way. He's been doing some uh, forensic archaeology. That's what I would describe it. Looking at uh, what was here before in terms of, you know, I think most people know by now, we're broadcasting from the Master at Arms quarters from the old Sandpoint Naval Air Station, right up above the gate to the the old Navy, Navy base that was here for many decades. Of course, it's now Warren G. Magnuson Park. But the history of this place for aviation goes back about 100 years Lee has been researching all sorts of stuff around the military and aviation history out here, and he's got some uh, interesting uh, results to share. In fact, you're going to want to follow along. There's a photograph that he annotated, an aerial photograph he shared with me a few days ago. It's on the Cascade of History Facebook page, and if you haven't gone there yet and liked that page and made all sorts of comments about things, please do that now because you'll want to follow along with, with this aerial image because, you know, you can talk about stuff on the radio, but if you have something to follow along with in terms of this image, you'll want to have that. Um, we're also going to talk to um, Megan Churchwell. She's with the Pacific Northwest Historians Guild, and there's a big conference coming up in the fall. There's some deadlines in the much uh, more recent future, just coming up in the next couple weeks, I think, uh, for submitting papers and other, other ways you can participate in the Pacific Northwest Historians Guild. So we'll talk to Megan Churchwell about that in the middle of the show. Oh, we've also got another episode in our... Um, an installment in our ongoing series of vintage audio. Everybody remembers, uh, I hope everybody remembers. Uh, let's see, I want to play the tease. Now, this is this 1938 piece of audio. I have, I'm going to step, I have to lean my head away from the microphone here for a second. Let's see. Yes, okay, there's the tease. I don't want to play the whole episode. But you might remember that last week's installment ended like this. Well, about now that we're down on the first floor, uh, I just begin to remember that you foxed me on the second floor. We never did find that hat that we are going to locate. Uh, well, that's a joke on you, Ken. So the joke was on Ken. So we're going to find out what happens now with his hat down on the second or the third floor. I can't remember what it was, but that, that we'll get to that later in the show. But before we do any of that, our first guest joining us on the line now, I'm going to see if I can get him on the phone right now. Nick Famoso, are you there? Let's see. I'm not here. Oh, there we are. Now, can you hear me, Nick? I can. Ah, there we go. As, as I say every week, I only do the show once a week, and I forget everything about all the technical stuff in between 9 o'clock Sunday one week and 8 o'clock the following week. But you are at John Day Fossil Beds National Monument. You're the paleontologist and the museum curator. Yeah. And I really appreciate you joining us on a Sunday night. I bet it's, I bet it's probably not a convenient time for you to get on the phone to talk to people on the radio, but... 
I was looking around, and that, that the John Day Fossil Beds is a place I, have, I admit I have not visited. I've seen it on the map many times. I think I've driven near it on my way between Spokane and Portland or vice versa. But for those who, someone who's never been there, doesn't know what it is, what are the John Day Fossil Beds? Yeah, so John Day Fossil Beds is a national monument that's run by the National Park Service. Uh, we were established in 1975, and the primary goal of the park is to preserve and interpret the geological and paleontological story of the John Day Basin. The park is made up of three different units. So our headquarters, our visitor center, primary visitor center, named after Thomas Condon, is in the Sheep Rock unit. And then it's also where the Cant Ranch Historic Museum uh, is also located. Then we have the Clarno unit, which is a little bit closer to Portland. And then we have the Painted Hills, which is one of the uh, quote-unquote seven wonders of Oregon huh. um, over closer to Bend. It's about an hour east. No, sorry. <laughs> I'm an hour east. Hour <laughs> west of where my office is. Uh, but we're about, it's about an hour and a half, two hours, uh, hour and a half-ish or so from Bend area. Um, but yeah, so primarily what we do is, you know, we preserve that geologic and paleontological of the, of the entire basin, and we have one of the longest continuous records of geological and paleontological uh, data from the age of mammals, so that goes back about 55 million years ago to about 5 million years ago. That's cool. Now, is, do you, now in your role, do you have to go to all those different units, kind of make the rounds? Uh, yeah, you know, we usually try to do uh, field work in all three of the units of uh, on a regular basis, we have a uh, we have a schedule that we usually try to keep to get around and check on all the fossil resources and all three units of the park. But we do send park rangers out more frequently to each of the units, you know, to you know make sure that things are in working order, refill, you know, <laughs> brochures and things like yeah. that. So there's there's always people that are are wandering around between the three units. So how long have you worked for the park service? So I have been working for this park for about six and a half years. Um, I actually did my Ph.D. on a lot of the resources at John Day before that, so I've been working out in this area professionally for a lot longer than that. Um, I grew up in southern Oregon, and so I got an opportunity to come out and visit when I was a small child. Um, but uh, the Park Service in general... Uh, I only have an additional three months on top of the time I've worked here <laughs> where I worked for Badlands National Park in South Dakota. Oh, wow. Okay. So when you were a little kid, was you, you actually visited this park as a little kid? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. What, was your, what was your favorite thing to go? What was, you, what's the first, your first memory of visiting when you were a child? <laughs> well, I think that probably my strong memories, because well, back then we only had the the Cant Ranch House Visitor Center and Museum, and that's where all the exhibits were before we built the building we have now. Um, so I have very strong memories of the fossils in the old in the old house exhibit. Oh, so that's cool. one of the things that's really cool. And my mom is a science teacher, and she actually came out uh, here to learn. There was a, a new education program at the time, of course, you know, like many, many years ago. <laughs> uh, um, but it was this uh, thing called the Horse Fossil Kit, um, and to this day, educators around the country actually make requests of these, and we ship these out. Uh, but they're full of replicas of 
uh, horse piece, and people can there's curriculum that goes with it, and people can use the curriculum, um, some of the activities to learn about horse evolution, which is actually one of the things that we have uh, an outstanding record of in our park. That's cool. So, what's the if is it a year-round park, or is it like better, more accessible in the spring, summer, early fall kind of thing? Well, we are open year-round. We don't have any seasonal closures of any parts of the park. Okay. Um, but we are <laughs> we are pretty far east, um, and when you're on the east side of the Cascades, especially up in the mountains like we are, we're up in, mostly in the Blue Mountains, oh. um, there are a lot of snowstorms. <laughs> and uh, one, of, one of my old superintendents, one of my old bosses, here used to say that we're like the Shire. You got two mountain passes. You got to get through whether you're coming or going. And in the winter time, it's it's open, but you got to be sure to check with the Department of Transportation's website to make sure that you can actually get over the mountain passes safely. Got it. Okay. Now, one thing I've noticed: it's hard enough to get people to understand. I don't know early 20th century Oregon, Washington, Idaho history, let alone you know 19th century. You're going back mm-hmm. 55 million years. Um, Mm-hmm. How misunderstood or how how much opportunity is there to teach people in the Northwest about the kind of history that you guys are dealing with every day? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's there's loads of opportunities for that. You know, people, you know, there's the, the direct contact that people can make at the visitor center, you know, with our rangers, with other employees of the park, you know, out and about and whatnot. Um, and that's a really important way to make that connection and to really, like, get a sense and see all the things that we have um you know in in this part of oregon going back as far back as we do um and then and then there's always like outreach events and other sorts of things like that that happen year round whether they're virtual or in person i was actually just down in the los angeles area a couple weeks ago meeting with some uh with some visitors at at a, a colleague's museum down there um we have our our there are gosh i'm sorry there are six different museums across the country that have fossils from the John Day region wow. in their collections, and that includes the Burke Museum in Seattle, um, the University of Oregon Museum, the museum affiliated with uh, UC Berkeley, uh, LA County Museum. There's just like all up and down this, this coast, as well as Yale and the American Museum on the East Coast. And the Florida Museum, right? So there's always opportunities to learn more about what we do uh, and what happens here. We, I, I actively publish research on the areas here. We find new species and new animals that have not been known to the Pacific Northwest quite frequently, wow. in, uh, not just in the field, but in our own collections. Uh, so there's all kinds of things that we can learn about and from, especially from the age of mammals because most people think that fossils are all dinosaurs right that's like no that's a big misconception there's a whole history that's after the dinosaurs of things that are more closely related to you know us and other mammals that are alive today than the dinosaurs and and do you you know who was the first person or when was someone first doing sort of academic research in the area now encompassed by the national monument yeah so originally the first western scientist or person with a science mind who was looking at the John Day fossil bed was a man by the name of Thomas Condon. Thomas Condon at the time was in the, uh, the time he was exposed to the fossils in the John Day region. It was about 18, between 1860 and 1865. 
Um, and he was a reverend at the time, but he'd always been really interested in fossils and geology back when uh, he grew up in Ireland and came over here and lived in New York. And so he just continued this interest and was a reverend, you know, up in the Dalles, up in the Gorge, huh. uh, and heard about fossils from the John Day region from some of the uh, military officers who were guarding the road between the Dalles and Canyon City where there had been gold discovered. Uh, and he was the first one to kind of start off this interest in the John Day base and the John Day region, eventually became the first state geologist and the first uh, professor of natural history at the University of Oregon, communicated with a lot of paleontologists affiliated with what's called the Bone Wars. Uh, so that'd be O.C. or that'd be Cope and Marsh. Um uh, over on the East Coast, and yeah, that was kind of the first time that anyone was really like focusing on that from an academic perspective. Um, but we've had people, you know, interested pretty much ever since then, coming out and working in the area. Wow! And so was he one of these sort of nineteenth-century types where he has some kind of a day job or a thing he's doing as a as a man of the cloth or whatever? Mm-hmm. But then he's just also one of these sort of um, I don't know Thomas Jefferson types where you have all these sort of your own scientific pursuits and you're sort of doing these kind of things that. A lot of people did that sort of stuff back then as amateurs, but he just took it a little bit further? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it certainly started off as an amateur sort of, like, love for these fossils and things. But he was always teaching people about, uh, you know, fossils and paleontology, like, even, you know, even through part of his sermons and things, you know, that was one of the things that he would do. Like, he always, like, felt... He never really felt that there was a... um, there There was a break between science and religion. He always thought that the two things were one and the same. Um, huh. And so that was that was one of the things that he always kind of talked about. Um, and eventually, right, he became a professor, you know, at, at the University of Oregon, the first natural history professor over there. Wow. Um, and so that, that was something that's, you know, really cool. And he, his name is honored, like, all over the place. Um, <laughs> and other members of his family are, are honored, too, like, out here and on the University of Oregon campus. That's cool. Sounds like a just like a typical kind of 19th century, you know, Oregon kind of your know, Northwest kind of guy, just with like different yeah. different mixture of pursuits and interests and you know professional things he's doing, but also just this passion for some particular thing. And that's you know that's to, mm-hmm. to all our benefits, I guess. Um, yeah. Now, okay, if someone was going to drive all the way out there from Seattle or from Portland or whatever down mm-hmm. from Spokane, where's where's the first place to go? Is there a main visitor center where there has the kind of the best introductory visit and those kinds of programs once the weather gets warmer? Yeah, yeah. One of the best places to go to actually see of the majority of the types of fossils that we have is at the, the Thomas Condon Paleontology and Visitor Center. Well, I've heard of him uh, before. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Congress actually mandated that we had to call our visitors, name our visitor center after him. Uh, so that, that, was a, that was an easy one. Um, but yeah, so the, the visitor center is probably the best place start, uh, especially if you're interested in, in paleontology, that this is the best place to go. Uh, honestly, we have some of the best natural history exhibits in the entire state of Oregon, um, and so it's a really awesome experience to, to come here. And we have rangers that are up at the front desk who can help you get oriented. We have a park film that you can watch either in our theater or on our website if you're, you know, you're like, oh, I don't know if I'm so interested in this, can I watch something first? We have a 20-minute park film that's on our website that you can watch that will uh, kind of orient you to the to some of the more particulars of, of the park. Huh. Um, but yeah, so that's always a good place to start. And we have a couple of good 
uh, trails in the area also that you can utilize. Uh, but a lot of people just go from Portland straight to the Painted Hills and they do a day drive there and just kind of see things and then drive back to Portland and, or, or to Bend instead of coming all the way to the visitor center. But, you know, I always say it's a, it's worth a visit to make it the extra hour drive and go over to the visitor center. Yeah, I mean, with the, the exhibits you describe it, is it like, should you allow, like, if someone's really interested, allow a couple hours at the visitor center or is it more like an hour? Or what's the typical amount of time you think to get the get the full experience there? Yeah, so if, if so, sometimes we do have programs, and occasionally we do. Give, we used to give gallery tours. I don't. I don't remember if that we're planning on uh, doing those again this year, just because of uh, staffing. But um, yeah, that area. So usually, like if you have a tour, the tour is around a half an hour, forty-five minutes usually, and on your own, you know, probably about that same amount of time is, is a good amount to walk through the exhibits that we have and, and take your time to read uh, what we have over there. But, you know, a lot of people like to come out here just to see the outside, right, just to be yeah. in the outdoors. Uh, and that's that part of the park is always open, you know, so you can come to the visitor center, you know, during the hours that we're open, which is usually about 9 to 5. And, you know, once you do that, any time after that, you can go and explore the outdoor areas of the park. Um, And that's a lot of people do like to come here to see this. We have great waysides um, that tell a really great story as well, in addition to what you see at the visitor center. And is there one particular fossil or set of fossils that the National Monument is particularly known for that's sort of the must-see, either artifacts that are on display in the in the visitor center or some particular place where you can hike to to see some particular uh, feature? Sure. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really hard question to answer because we have seven different periods of time that we really tell the story of, you know, so it's, it's seven, seven slices. And so each one of those slices has something significant. And the other thing that's hard is a lot of a lot of because we share so much time many other national park service units have have some of the same animals that we do but they're the only like they have only that at their one park so it's kind of hard it's like oh you know we could talk about the things from the legacy from 30 million years ago but yeah you know like badlands and agate fossil beds have entelodonts these big terminator pigs or hell pigs right it's like we have them too but it's like uh, they got they got more of them sort of thing. it's like oh well what are some of the other like weird and strange things that we do have a couple of weird cool things like we have one of the highest diversities of dogs uh or dog ancestors in uh in our one unit called the, the turtle cove member huh. um, right so we have a lot of dogs there are these false saber-toothed cats uh, but I think that that assemblage is probably the one that is the most iconic for the park. Like when most people think of John Day fossil beds, they probably think of the animals that they see there, like the uh, false saber-toothed cats or nimravids, uh, the the large diversity of horses, which you don't you see in that particular section, but you do see it um, in the next two horizons after that, uh, uh, the mascal formation and the rattlesnake formation. And then the Clarno's got some really bizarre stuff like a couple of years ago, uh, we don't have the fossil here, uh, but we have, um, you know, this, this this hyena pig thing that we had called Harpagolestes. But um, we don't have that one on display, but we have this other grizzly bear-sized thing called Hemipsalodon on display. Wow. Right? There's just a lot of really bizarre things. An alligator fossil on display, or crocodile, crocodilian, I should say. Um, you know, so there's just a lot of different things that you can see there. 
And, you know, it's just whatever might strike your fancy. Like if you're into animals of any kind, most likely we have something there. We also have a load of plants. We have over 900 species of plants on display, uh, or not on display, but have been found, I should say, um, in our collections. And so, like, there's a, if you're into plants, if you're into animals, there's all kinds of things that you could potentially find. Even even insect fossils we have in the park. Wow. And maybe this is kind of a silly question, but why are there so many fossils that are in that area? Why is that? Why that area get chosen as a place to have a national monument? Why are there so many fossils there to begin with? Right. Yeah. So the fossils. So it, it's a little complicated too in that particular fashion, right? We've got all these different types of rocks over all these different periods of time, um, but I think in the end, what really helps, right, is. 16 million years ago, there was a big flood basalt that covered most of eastern Oregon and eastern Washington and parts of Idaho called the Columbia River Basalt. And that's what makes the Columbia River Gorge um, and even shows up in places along the, the northern Oregon coast. But that rock layer, because it's basalt, is pretty resistive to erosion. And so because of that, the rocks out here, the nice, soft, squishy rocks that have all the cool fossils in them, didn't immediately get eroded and washed out into the ocean through the Columbia River Gorge, right? They, uh, they have been protected for a long period of time by those harder rocks that have been sitting on top of them. Hmm. So that's part of the reason why the fossils haven't eroded, but a reason why we see more fossils getting preserved uh, is probably partially due to the sheer number of volcanic eruptions that we have and ash, uh-huh. for whatever reason, when it mixes in, tends to be really good at preserving fossils. Um, and so we just have a really good record through all of that time. And you get the, you know, you got to have the right environment, the right things happening at the right times in order to preserve all the things. And that's, we just happen to be lucky. That's really cool. And so Thomas Condon noticed that back in the 19th century. And then is there a short version for how the monument was created back in the 70s? Was there What was the particular impetus for it happening at that time? Do you know? Oh, gosh. <laughs> it isn't so the story itself is kind of the, the the story to tell is rather short but it did take place over a long period of time okay so they originally started trying to make john day fossil beds into a national monument in the 1960s okay um is when that started um in the in the 30s there had been a push from john c Miriam from the, from berkeley to turn it in to preserve it as some kind of public land and what he was pushing for was a state park and so that was how we started we were three state parks and then eventually a professor from the university of oregon was uh part of this conversation his name was Gerald shotwell um and shotwell was actually wrote a letter to congress saying you know this uh, this area is really important there's a lot of very important fossils in this area um they have national significance. In fact, international significance. You really ought to set this aside as a national monument. Um, and eventually, after getting enough support from the local government, the state government, um, it was eventually, uh, through an act of Congress, turned into a national monument. Very cool. Well, it sounds like a great place. I'm going to make an effort to get down there this summer. Um, on one of my trips to Spokane, we'll kind of veer off to the south and go, go out of our way yeah. to go check it out. Because it sounds like it's certainly a part of history that I'm, 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 I'm not as familiar with and not as knowledgeable about, knowledgeable about as I would like to be. 
-hmm. is if you were going to recommend one book for someone to read before they came for a visit, like a sort of to study and understand as much about the the monument down there as possible, or about geology in the Northwest, this kind of, or paleontology in the Northwest, is there one particular book that's good? Oh man, there's there's a couple of books that I think would be really. There's two that I can think of off the top of my head that would probably be good. Uh, introductory books that are designed for the general public um one of which is written by a former park ranger of ours uh i think it's called a closer look john day fossilbeds national monument Um, and i think that our cooperating association discover your northwest has that book for sale uh online and they're actually based out of seattle oh yeah yeah Um, also Yeah. yeah um so there's that one that gives a pretty broad under you know description a little bit more focus on john day fossil beds so it's a little bit of a higher level book um but i think another really good one would be uh cruising the fossil coastline which is a ray troll and kirk johnson book that came out a couple of years ago okay uh, it doesn't go into a lot of depth into john day fossil beds specifically uh but it, it we are included in the story and it's got great murals and things about, you know, both Washington and Oregon and tell some really interesting stories about the general paleontology of the entire West Coast of the United States and into Canada. Um, so that's a, another one that would probably be a good one to take a look at. There's a few other more focused ones, like there's a Geology of Oregon and Fossils of Oregon book. You know, there's a few of those out there that talk about us or the roadside geology book. Uh, oh, those are really good. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know they, that one. They, they're, they're all kind of general. They don't go into a lot of detail into the park. So that first one I mentioned, the Closer Look book, is the one that's going to give more focus on the, nice. into the park. Nice. Um, but, you know, so if you wanted to read, that's a really good option. But, of course, like looking at our website, uh, nps.gov slash joda uh, is probably one of the other really good places to start. And that's also where our park film and a bunch of other orientation information is located, and that can also really help you out. Right on. Well, listen, Nicholas Famoso from the John Day Fossil Beds National Monument, thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. I've illuminated a part of the area's history that I certainly did not know very much about, and I look forward to getting down there to visit. I really thank you for joining us tonight on the show. Thank you. Good night, Nick. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Good night. Bye. All right. That was Nicholas Famoso, the paleontologist and museum curator at the National Park Service's John Day Fossil Beds National Monument. I'll put that book information and links to the website for the National Monument at the Cascade of History Facebook page. And remember, if you haven't done so yet, you'll want to go to the Facebook page now while while there's still time to look at the image we posted a few days ago of the... uh, the archaeological work, that uh, kind of anthropological, archaeological, uh, what was I calling it? I was, I was calling it a forensic archaeology that Lee Corbin was doing, which we'll be talking about coming up in about oh, 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, before we do that, now, I think you'll, everyone remembers the teaser, how installment seven ended last week of Washington at work in the old J.C. Penney building. Well, Bob, now that we're down on the first floor... Uh, I just begin to remember that you foxed me on the second floor. We never did find that hat that we were going to locate. Uh, well, that's a joke on you, Ken. And it certainly was a joke on Ken. So here's, here's the next exciting installment. Uh, we uh, selected that hat and are putting it in the, the window uh, since we consider it so smart. 
In other words, the hat wasn't on the second floor at all. No, that's right. And it went from the fifth floor, Ed Davis' department, directly to the window display. Yes, that's right. Well, now we're on the first floor, and we're standing on this mezzanine balcony effect and looking out over the first floor uh, in total. Bob, exactly what goes on here on the first floor? Uh, far towards the door are women's accessories and notions. On the other half, the entire section is devoted to menswear with lower-priced men's work clothing on this balcony on which we're standing. I see. Well, now, who do we talk to who is in charge? Uh, Mr. Neelands is in charge of the menswear, and Mr. Goodrich uh, in charge of the women's accessories. All right. Well, we'll ask a question or two of Mr. Neelands first. Now, I understand that this uh, mezzanine balcony effect up here is exclusively a men's uh, province. It is exclusively men's. It's really, uh, come up here and you can have a stag party. <laughs> I understand, furthermore, that you even have it so arranged that you have a separate entrance and a separate stairway right up to the uh, mezzanine balcony. That's right. The men don't have to pass through the women's side of the floor. You think that that's something novel and new in Seattle? Absolutely. It's the only one. You think it's going to go over big with the men? Well, it certainly should. Well, I certainly think it should, too. Well, now we're going to ask a question or two of Mr. Neelands about the women's accessory. He happens to be up here on the balcony, uh, along with us at the present moment, uh, looking over his department, which is in full display down below. A good rich, I beg your pardon. Now, uh, Mr. Goodrich, uh, just uh, what all uh, comes under your particular province? Well, we have the women's accessories. That's the holes and gloves and bags and belts. And uh, then we have the candy department, notions, drugs, and uh, we have slips and underwear on this floor. Well, now up on the fifth floor, we uh, selected one item for the first floor to, to find <laughs> somewhere in the, in the store as we went through on this tour. And we happened to select the marking of a pair of gloves. Now, what girl in your department would be working on gloves, and where could I ask a question of her? Boy, that's a good teaser. What girl is working on gloves in your department, and uh, when can I question her? So, you know, we're gradually making our way, and as I, I, you might remember last week, I peeled the curtain back a little bit because in between these phone calls from our wonderful guests around the region, I need some way to turn my microphone off, play something so I can bring the next phone call, or line up the next phone call for the next guest. So, because I'm, I'm just here by myself. I know it seems like there's a team of 75 people working on the show from the sophistication and the slickness and the level of quality. But really, it's just me and uh, uh, my phone texting people, telling them when it's time to call in. And anyway, uh, so we'll have uh, we'll have installment number nine in the exciting Washington at Work 1938, J.C. Penney, downtown Seattle, Second and Pike. That will be coming up next week. Um, and let's see, I'll, I'll make one more pitch. Go to the Facebook page and look at that picture that Lee Corbin shared of the, uh, the aerial view of Sandpoint, the old Sandpoint Naval Air Station, now Magnuson Park, and the NOAA facility. We'll be talking to Lee next. Before we talk to Lee, I want to bring, let's see, where is she? I'm going to bring Megan Churchwell on the phone. Megan, can you hear me? I can. Oh, I knew which buttons to press this time. Because <laughs> I'm halfway through the show. I'm all, it's, all, it's all coming back to me like, it, like, it, like I've done this a million times. Um, <laughs> so you are, we invited you on. I saw, I think it was a posting on it was Facebook or somewhere about the Pacific Northwest Historians Guild Conference. And are you the president of the guild? I am not. No, I'm just a board member. Okay. Um, but now that organization, for someone who doesn't know what that is, what is it? Uh, so the Pacific Northwest Historians Guild brings together people who are interested in studying regional history. So we've been around since 1980, and we're, we're for everyone who's interested in the history of the Pacific Northwest. So students and academic historians, and also those working or volunteering in museums and other kinds of public history things, and independent historians, too. 
us. So we are really an organization that's open to everyone who's interested in history. I like that mix. I don't know if that's if that's unique or particular or peculiar to the peculiar to the Pacific Northwest, but it seems like there are very few barriers between people who are like PhD level historians who are working in big institutions and people who just have a deep passion for some particular aspect of history and have trained themselves or have, you know, taken workshops and classes at different museums and apply the same kinds of rigor and everything that someone with a PhD would apply. But if, it seems like with the, the Guild in particular, there's a really good mix of the whole spectrum. Absolutely. Yeah, we've, we've really tried to be open to everyone. You don't need a degree or a career in history to join us. And is the membership spread out all over the Northwest, or is it, where is it primarily concentrated somewhere? Or? Uh, so, you know, we were founded in Seattle as a very Seattle-centric organization, and pre-COVID, all of our uh, programs were in person in Seattle. But uh, since 2020, we've transitioned mostly online to Zoom. And oh. we've actually found that we attract a much wider audience that way, uh, not just uh, people tuning in, but also a much wider variety of speakers as well, since there are great historians doing amazing Pacific Northwest work who might not physically be located here. Isn't that crazy? It's one of those weird silver linings from the pandemic. I, I know the um, yeah. or- Oregon Historical Society found they started offering programs on Zoom, and it meant they were connecting with people all over the state of Oregon, where before they had, you know, they, they, they weren't just in Portland, but they definitely have found a way to reach people beyond just the regular, you know, in-person programming, which I, I don't know, if, I, I don't think the level of that's going to continue forever, but it sure is a great option for an organization like yours or like the Oregon Historical Society to be able to connect with people that way. It's, that's, that's amazing. Um, and so the, the, before we talk about the conference, I think you mentioned there are regular programs. What, what's, the, what's the regular programmatic offerings of the Historians Guild like? Uh, sure. So we offer uh, monthly presentations, generally on the fourth Thursday of the month, uh, mainly on Zoom, at least for now, along with a couple of in-person events every year, uh, like tours and, and walks and things of that nature. Uh, we actually have a program coming up uh, this coming Thursday, the 27th. Uh, so we'll be having Anna Maria Spagna, uh, whose book is titled Pushed, Miners, a Merchant, and Maybe a Massacre. <laughs> uh, it's a really interesting research in the, an 1875 event involving a group of Chinese miners. Uh, so. Oh, yeah, yeah. I saw yeah. something about that. Okay, that's coming yeah. up this Thursday. Okay, that's great. Yeah, um, uh, and that's free to attend, but uh, you do need to pre-register for the Zoom link. Where is, what's the website for people who want more information about the Pacific Northwest Historians Guild? Where's the best place to go? Uh, we are at pnwhistorians.org, and we also are on Facebook. And the conference that's coming up, I think it's in September, right? It is, yeah. It's on Saturday, September 23rd. Okay, and then where, where will it be held this year? It's at the downtown branch of the Seattle Public Library. Okay. And, but there's a deadline coming up in a few weeks for people to submit either papers or proposals for, for panels and that sort of thing. What's, what's that all about? There sure is. So we are currently inviting proposals for panels and sessions for our conference. Uh, so I, I know, of course, you have a, quite an audience of local history aficionados. So uh, if any of your audience members out there are working on something related to Pacific Northwest history and you want to share it, we would love to see you submit a proposal. Those are due May 15th. Now, is there a theme that's, um, or is it sort of, is it looser than that? Uh, So there is a theme, uh, but it's pretty broad intentionally so that uh, we don't limit any proposals. Uh, Uh The 
title is Revisit and Reimagine Pacific Northwest Histories. Okay. Um, and, can, I mean, can you uh, illuminate a little bit more of the theme? Can you talk a little bit about the theme, kind of what you, what you what, what, even on broad terms, what you mean by that? Sure. Uh, so we're looking at things like uh, what and how we research, uh, how facts are interpreted, and how history is written, uh, how do broader perspectives inform our understanding of o- old stories and provide insight into new ones. Uh, so, yeah, uh, and, and it seems yeah. like I mean we we this topic the version of this topic I bring a version of this topic up I don't know not every single episode but this notion of how much the way people produce and consume history has changed even before the pandemic um, especially in terms of social media and as much as um, Facebook is criticized for you know uh, hate fueled <laughs> algorithms that have people you know railing against their neighbors and you know taking up uh, fisticuffs <laughs> against their political opponents. I do think Facebook has been a boon for local and regional history. Um, oh, and, I definitely agree. Yeah. And, and that level playing field, kind of that same thing we were talking about when we first started this conversation a moment ago about, you know, PhD historians and amateur historians. I see that a lot on Facebook. And I've said this, I've said this a few times on this show where like Mohai or somebody might paste, post a picture of the, uh, from the Seattle World's Fair, some official photograph taken by a you know, professional photographer with great lighting and everything, and it's all in focus and it's composed nicely, and it's, you know, it's the Space Needle or something. But then somebody will comment and paste a really like faded, like an old Kodachrome washed-out color picture of themselves in their, with their mom when they're like two years old, like, you know, with their, you know, having a birthday party at the Space Needle or something. And it's just like the intermingling of collections and memories and historic record is just... I mean, it's 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 overwhelming sometimes how much material there's out there. But I think if you're if you have the time and the patience, there's just there's just unlimited horizons now for the amount of material out there and the audience that's hungry for it. I think Vintage Seattle, which is or Seattle Vintage, I always get it mixed up. One of the Facebook pages has something like I don't know, 150,000 followers or something. I mean, it's it's there's this incredible hunger for, and some of it's pretty nostalgic, right? It's a lot of it's just pictures and sort of memories and that sort of thing. But it's all kind of like the entry level to getting people who have a deeper interest, you know, interested in doing something more, like putting together a panel or doing some sort of a, a research project or something that would fit into the conference that you guys are offering in September. Yeah, I definitely agree. I've, I've loved to see how much local history is happening out there on the Internet. And I really hope that uh, some of those local historians end up submitting a proposal and, and sharing their work with the audience at our conference. And it's, you, I think you said the date, it's September? Uh, so the conference is uh, Saturday, September 23rd. Okay, so it's, it's right just as the summer is ending then. Okay, and then you want, you, people want to get their proposals in by the middle of May. Um, I mean, would it be helpful? Are there a couple, can you give any examples? Have you ever heard, have you heard about any panels that are already in the works, or are there panels from previous years that you think were kind of uh, exemplary in terms of the kinds of things that people might want to be thinking about putting together or, or proposing? Boy, the, the range of proposals that we usually get for this conference is so unbelievably wide, uh, and I'm always surprised yeah. by what kind of <clears throat> what kind of topics come out of the woodwork. Yeah, because you don't have to be you don't have to write some long formal paper. You could you could sort of think like, hey, I know these three or four historians who are doing similar like, related projects in like Carnation and Fall City and Bremerton, and I can have them get together and we could talk about, you know preserving your photo collection or making your photo collection more accessible. That, that, that's the kind of thing you guys are looking for, right? Sort of stuff that kind of hits on themes, that gets people kind of talking amongst themselves between different institutions? 
absolutely. Yeah, that would okay. be great. Um, you can use that idea if you want. You can use that idea that I just gave. <laughs> um, I, I do want to emphasize, if you are just an individual historian out there uh, and you don't have a preformed panel with other historians that you know, yeah. that's okay. Okay. Uh, submit a proposal anyways, and uh, we'll do our best to arrange some panels with some like-minded historians out okay. there. And give us a pitch for membership. I mean, how do people, if they want to be, want to support your organization, be on those membership lists and get to go to those events and feel like they're one of the team, how do you, how do you join the Pacific Northwest Historians Guild? Uh, so a lot of what we offer is free to attend, in, including our monthly meetings and the conference itself. Uh, we do offer paid memberships, uh, which support our ongoing work to share all this great regional history. And you can find information about those memberships at our website, which is, again, pnwhistorians.org. All right. Well, Megan Churchwell, thanks for taking time out of your Sunday night to join us on Cascade of History. I'd love to have you back in the future. Tell us more. Give us an update. When we get closer to the conference, let's make sure we let people know when it's going on and where it's going on and if they can participate remotely. Because we, we try to talk to people in Oregon, Idaho, Washington, and British Columbia. We try to treat the Northwest as this big sort of geographic area. So we'll definitely try to help spread the word out there and uh, definitely reach out to us. If there's anything that you want to share with our audience, we'd be more than happy to help out. And I'll put stuff about the conference. I'll keep putting stuff on the um, Cascade of History Facebook page. And let's just keep in touch throughout the summer. Sounds great. All right. Thanks, Megan Churchwell. Have a good evening. Thanks. You too. Megan Churchwell from the Pacific Northwest Historians Guild. And there already is some information on the Cascade of History Facebook page if you want to... um, see information about the conference and about proposing something, uh, either whether it's a a presentation of your own or putting together a panel or something. It is a great event, and the downtown Seattle Public Library is a great venue for that sort of stuff, too. So, All right, well, coming up in just a moment, we're going to talk to a forensic archaeologist and uh, chief chief research officer for Cascade of History, Lee Corbin. He's going to be joining us by phone. But um, before we get to that, you know, yesterday was Record Store Day. I did a couple of stories last week for Cairo about, um, oh, I talked to the governor and the mayor and the county executive about their favorite record, first record they bought with their own money, their favorite record store, that sort of thing. And then on Friday, I did a story about the old, the penthouse, which was the jazz club down on First and Cherry, where um, Jim Wilkie recorded, well, he, he broadcast, he produced live broadcasts from there from 1962 to 1967 or 68, or 68 or 69. And they recorded them back at the station, and it's all these great jazz artists. They're releasing them now. A lot of them now is records. Anyway, yesterday was Record Store Day, and I was thinking about my favorite record store memories about uh, Cellophane Square in the University District in Seattle on 42nd Street. I used to spend a lot of time and money um, when I was supposed to be in school, in college, 35, 40 years ago, whenever that was. And uh, um, I was thinking about the Young Fresh Fellows because uh, Scott McCoy, who was in that band, um, was managing Cellophane Square back in those days. Anyway, and I, and I got thinking about an old uh, tape I made. So I have got want to play a Young Fresh Fellows song, um, and it's got a few seconds of intro where uh, this is recorded. First of all, I recorded this live at the Mural Amphitheater, August 5th, 1985, Shadow of the Space Needle. It's also World's Fair weekend, right? It's the 61st anniversary of the World's Fair um, kicking off. So I'm glad I remembered that because I wanted to do something about the World's Fair this week. But anyway, so this is just one song. It's called How Much About Last Night Do You Remember? This is a month or two before the uh, the record album called Topsy Turvy was released. And it's just a really good live show sponsored by KJET, uh, the great, late, great AM station on uh, 1590. 
where Mike Fuller, who's was involved, who's on the who puts a show on here on um, on Space One on one point one FM. Anyway, um, let's just listen to the song. This is just a, about eh, two and a half minutes from this live recording from August fifth, nineteen eighty five. It's a Young Fresh Fellows at the Mural Amphitheater. This is a song off our new album. It's not really that new because it's not out yet. When it comes out for a few days, it will be pretty new. It's time for a nice, refreshing, ice-filled drink. Just because you have some ice cream. Since you have your feet in the water, we did that, we'd get electrocuted. What's going on there, Ted? Fresh Fellows live at the Mural Amphitheater, August 5th, 1985. This is Space 101.1 FM. It's Cascade of History. I'm Felix Bunnell. We're here live every Sunday from 8, 8 to 9 p.m. Pacific time talking to people all around the Pacific Northwest doing interesting things with and for Pacific Northwest history. Now, um, one of our, our next guests is Lee Corbin. I see I can get him on the phone right now. Stand by here. Lee, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Ah, terrific. Thanks for joining us tonight on Cascade of History. Um, I've been, I don't know if you've been tuned in, but I've been plugging this picture you sent me. You sent me this picture a couple of days ago. It's aerial photo, Sandpoint Naval Air Station, former Sandpoint Naval Air Station, now Magnuson Park, now the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration uh, building there. I saw that picture, and you marked some things on it, and I put it on the Facebook page, and I've been telling people to go to the Facebook page and get it out so they can follow along. But to me, what that represents, it's like a... Uh, Forensic archaeology, like you're trying to, well, explain what you've been trying to do in terms of locating where where particular resources were on here on the old uh, Naval Station campus or Naval Station layout 100 years ago. 
Well, uh, you know, I'm interested with um, the 100-year anniversary coming up here next year of the uh, armies around the world flight. I've been trying to figure out exactly where everything was when that flight took place as far as the one hangar that was on the field and and the uh, the pier that they used to, to swap the airplanes um, from wheels onto pontoons and things like that. And so I've just been uh, looking at uh, old aerial photos and real estate maps and, and topography maps and things like that. And I think I, I finally got it figured out um, thanks to some aerial photos that I was able to come across. And then now you and I were out here wandering around. It's, it was maybe, God, it was last year even? I guess sometime maybe around uh, October or November, we went and walked to the, there's the seaplane ramp. There's that concrete seaplane ramp, which is dating right. more to the sort of late 1930s. And we were looking over across the fence over where the NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration offices are now. But so right. so what, I mean, kind of look, looking at that photo, kind of talk about the different shapes there and what they represent and how you figured out that that's, you think, the spot where the, where that where that particular resource was? Um, well, <clears throat> the, um, the uh, arena sports hangar that's there now is the, uh, is the one a part of Magnuson Park. And it's the parking area there is separated with a fence which separates Noah from Magnuson Park. And if you, if you go on the opposite side of that fence line, um, which is the one box that has squared off there. Yeah, I that, see that. I see it, yeah. It's the, uh, the footprint of, basically the footprint of the first hangar that the Navy built um, on Sand Point, and that would have been about 1928 or so. Okay. So I was able to find that on an aerial photo and also the original Army hangar, and I could see that they were, they were not as close together as I had envisioned them initially. So the, um, the, the pier that's there now that NOAA uses um, kind of is a, is a good landmark to use. Just to the right of that is most likely where the original pier was in 1924. And, of course, that pier was right at the back end of the original Army hang that, uh, that was there okay. at the time. And that, that showed up about early 1923. And then, of course, back in those years, the, the, the runway was just uh, a straight north-south runway. They hadn't angled it yet because it, there was no need to do so. And it was about a 2,000-foot-long runway. And it was about maybe they started off at about 350 feet in width, but they were, just, they were constantly enlarging this field. They, they'd get it get one project done with the runway, and I think they just start all over again. Start. <laughs> they'd, be cut, they'd be cutting, because there was a lot of trees and stuff at the time, yeah. and so they're down trees on the left and on the right and, and towards the south and constantly enlarging the field. Now, that the, the first hangar you're talking about, the 1928 Navy hangar, that's roughly where that uh, parking lot is on the fence opposite the Arena Sports parking lot. Well, that's a mouthful. Um, <laughs> is that is that parking lot, which looks suspiciously the same shape and size of that red rectangle, is is that a coincidence that that parking lot is that same footprint, or was that sort of like a naturally uh, uh, graded place where it made sense to put a parking lot, or is that parking lot actually the old surface of the hangar? 
Well, that's what I've been thinking, is that they may have just uh, paved over the, uh, the original concrete floor of the hangar. Wow. I, I think it took some of it away to the north end, um, because the hangar was a little bit longer. Okay. Up north. But uh, I think you could pretty much say that that's the footprint of that hangar there. That's crazy. Um, now, let's see. So is that... Now, what became of that hangar ultimately, that 1928 Navy hangar? Um, they tore that down sometime in the late 70s when Noah took over. Okay, so it was there not too long ago. I mean, that's only, well, 45 years ago, let's say. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, let's see. So then the other hangar, the one that's over uh, would be to the east of the current pier. That's the one right. that you think was, that's one that was disassembled and moved someplace. Yes. Yeah, that one, um, they built it in uh, late 2022, early 23, and then um, when the Navy really started to take over Sandpoint, they basically told the Army, okay, you guys got to leave now. Um, <laughs> by, that time, by that time, Boeing Field was up and running, and, and King County built a hangar for the uh, Army Reserves. So they were able to move out of there, and uh, as soon as the Navy told them, hey, you guys got to leave, the hangar was disassembled, and they shipped it over to, uh, to the uh, Port, uh, Port Townsend Airport, which is, uh, was an Army airfield at the time, and is now Jefferson County Airport. And that hangar was standing to this day? That hangar is still there, yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> and, th- and that's a hangar where Charles Lindbergh visited at least, what, you think, two times, you think? Well, I, yeah, we know at least he was there um, in 1927 when he came around uh, and it was flying around the country after his uh, Atlantic crossing. But then I also came across uh, an article that he came back the following year to talk to, uh, for some private talk with Bill Boeing. Huh. A one little clip in the newspaper that seemed to imply that they shoved his airplane. It wasn't the spirit of St. Louis. <laughs> Uh, they shoved it into the hangar to uh, to keep it away from uh, from curiosity seekers. <laughs> now, based based on where you drew the the footprint of the hangar we were just talking about, the one that Lindbergh was in a couple times, and the Spirit of St. Louis was in 1928, I think, right or 27. Right. Um, that pier, do you think there's do you think there's any chance there's evidence, archaeological evidence of that pier, like still out there in Lake Washington, because it seems like if they removed the pier, they wouldn't necessarily have gone to the trouble to remove all the pilings or whatever else might have been uh, the footings for that pier. Right, right. Uh, you know, it, it's hard to say because that shoreline was actually modified quite a bit over the years. Uh, okay. when, they built the, uh, when they built the angled runways, they actually kind of extended uh, the shoreline out, and then they kind of chopped it back after they took the runways away. Okay. So quite a bit. Yeah, because it looks like, based on that, it looks like there was quite a bit of changes to the land there, um, so there'd be probably no evidence of that, of the footings for that hangar that was moved, or of the pier now, probably. Um, I, I think it's all been pretty well uh, changed over the years. Yeah, and it's, I mean, that's, we've talked before here on the show about the aviation history that's just, it's not hidden. I mean, it's, you know, it's 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 there if you know where to look, but it seems like there's just huge opportunity for interpretation, whether it's signage or some kind of um, 
some kind of overlay that, that lets people know where all these different aspects were to the military stuff that was going on here, to the assembly of, and delivery of Boeing aircraft to the military here, uh, you know, the, the Clipper, Boeing Clippers they were testing just north of here at Matthews Beach. There's just, there's just so much incredible aviation history, and really, you could, you could drive through here and not see any of it unless you had someone kind of giving you a tour and telling you where it was. So um, maybe this centennial will be the kind of catalyst that the, I know the, I know the friends of Magnuson Park are working hard to, to change that. And they have that exhibit in one of the buildings and they want to do more interpretation and stuff. And I know you've been, you've been doing a ton of research. You've, you've shared a lot of it with me, just sending me emails and stuff. And it's always cool to, to get a note from you with like the latest, the latest find of, of, uh, some un- unraveling some part of the aviation mystery here at, uh, Magnuson Park. It's pretty cool. So, so now what's next for you in terms of the quest here to figure out what was here, where it was? Um, oh, did you say there's, there's, did you discover something more about the, the, the peripatetic monument? Is that something you're still working on too? Yeah, um, I think I know, you know, interestingly enough, there was the normal way of getting into Sam Point now is at 74th Street. Back in the 20s, the early 20s, there was actually another road just to the north at around maybe 77th that you could go in uh, into the field. And I think that's where the original uh, location was, right where that intercepted the field hmm. is where the monument was initially placed. And then I know, and it may have stayed there, um, you know, of course, again, they were, they were cutting down trees and widening. Uh, at some point, they actually took the monument down and and put it away in storage, like around 1931, because they were widening the field and cut down trees and things like that. So eventually, it ended up um, a little farther to the south. Um, I guess I guess you could say maybe just a little bit north of the 74th Street entrance, okay. but okay. out out towards the middle of the field. And then where Hangar 30 is today. Is where they placed it before, they, obviously, before they built Hangar 30, and then around the late 30s, they finally moved it out towards at the entrance there, where it is today. Huh. And it's so Good. it's such an inhospitable place. Like I think you and I were there looking at it not too long ago, and it's like you have to sort of r- risk your life dashing across the road to look at it. Right. And there's about 18 inches to stand. There's very little room to stand and actually appreciate it. You can't really get back far enough to really fully appreciate it, and you can't really get close enough to really kind of like. I don't know. It's 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 certainly highly visible for the cars speeding by, but it isn't isn't in any way. It doesn't feel sort of. Uh, it doesn't feel like some kind of a tribute. It feels kind of like an afterthought, or like we stuck this here because we couldn't think of where else to put it. So right, right. Maybe I I don't know. I the I don't know. You don't know. The friends aren't thinking about trying to get that relocated, are they? Is there any is there any talk about trying to move that someplace different? I have not heard anything along those okay. lines. Yeah. All right. Well, we are just about out of time here, but um, Lee Corbin, Chief Research Officer for Cascade of History, thanks for making time out of your busy schedule on a late on a Sunday night to give us the update on the uh, forensic archaeology project you're conducting here at Magnuson Park. All right. You're very welcome. All right, Lee. Have a good night. Talk to you later. All right. Bye, Phil. That's Lee Corbin, a great friend of this show and a great his- historical researcher. I get so much help from Lee with different history research projects. The guy is just like an encyclopedia, and he's a really good researcher. He tracks down these incredible stories about a lot of it related to aviation and military history, and he always sends me emails with these cool PDFs of old articles and stuff. So, well, we've reached the end of the cruise here on the Cascade of History. I want to thank um, 
Megan Churchwell from the Pacific Northwest Historians Guild for joining us, and Nick Famoso from the John Day Fossil Beds National Monument. Um, you can get the podcast here. We're on Space 101.1 FM. Our podcast of Cascade of History is available on most platforms. We will see you next week on Cascade of History. That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it. That's a slippery spot there. Oh, I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonnell.